All right. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I am Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family this morning in the field and online. You sat in a different place, online people, today, but welcome to your new place in the field. Great to be together as a church family this morning, whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. If you are online but would like to join us in the field sometime, if that's something you would desire to do, we would love it. Just remember to register online. The registration opens around the conclusion of our 11 o'clock service. So we'd love to have you and would ask you to register so we know that you are coming. Of course, if you'd like to just uh, stay online for a while, we totally understand. If some of you in the field switch back and forth online to the field, we totally understand. It's just fun to be together. Just good to be together as a church family. Last week, I preached part one of a two-part series on faith and politics. So if you want to take a guess what I'm doing today, part two. Here it comes. The goal of this little two-week sermon split into two parts is to try to help us find a way to view political engagement through the lens of faith, not vice versa, but to find a way to view political engagement through the lens of faith, a Jesus Christ-centered way to engage in voting and political advocacy. So that if you follow Jesus, or today or in the future, you come to follow Jesus, you don't have to view your faith and your political engagement as totally different things. You can view your political engagement as something you do in a Jesus-centered way. And I'm trying to broaden the way we think about this just beyond how we vote. Because as Christians and as those considering Christ in the U.S., yes, we do get a say in who gets elected, but no matter who gets elected, we have the opportunity to advocate directly to our elected officials on issues that matter to us. Political engagement is bigger, it includes, but it is bigger than who wins elections. So if you missed the sermon from last week, you can always find it on the website. We studied the following life-changing passage. Matthew chapter 10, verse 2. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Expectant parents, take note. A lot of good Bible names in that passage. You could pick in Alpheus Thaddeus IV. You know, that's a pretty good name. So you can hear people's lives changing as I read the passage. What we zeroed in on was Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. They're both disciples of Jesus. They were both welcomed into God's family in Jesus' name. And yet they had totally different convictions on the biggest political issue of their day, which is what to do with the Roman government, how to relate to the Roman Empire. Matthew, as a tax collector, cooperated with, actually worked for, got a paycheck from the Roman government, and Simon, as a zealot, was looking for his chance to violently overthrow the Roman government. And yet, in Jesus, they found a unity deeper than their differences. The point was, God invites you and God invites me to have convictions 
to have convictions even on matters that could be disputed, political engagement, for example, to study the matter, to come to a conviction, to, to begin to live out of your conviction to the extent that you can, but also at the same time to hold those convictions out here, to not hold them too tight, to hold them out here where Jesus can mold them and shape them, refine them into convictions that honor him so that over time as we live out our convictions, we are living out more and more God-honoring convictions. So the Bible is also clear that there's a handful of things in life that we do want to hold close. But it's a very small list because there are very few things that truly last. And, and the passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, points what they are. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says this, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is a passage that often gets read at weddings, but it's, in its initial context, what it's talking about is the day that you and I stand before God, our Creator, and everything changes radically. That in the presence of God's radiant goodness, most things are going to be swept away. Most things we will realize were not eternally meaningful. That doesn't mean they were not important but they were not lastingly meaningful. Only a few things will last. What will last? What will truly stand the test of time? See if you remember the verse. Faith, hope, love. Faith meaning that we learn to trust God. We learn to trust God's ways. We learn to trust God's love for us revealed in Jesus Christ. Hope is to walk forward in confidence because of that faith. And love is to be transformed by our Creator to take on His character. So faith, to learn to trust God, God's ways, and God's love for us revealed in Jesus Christ. Hope is to walk forward in confidence because of that faith. Love is to be transformed by our Creator to take on His character. Faith, hope, love. The Scripture says those are the things to hold right here, to hold close, to not let go, to not lose heart even when things are hard. When everything else fades, faith and hope and love will remain. So hold those three close, and you will not stand before God empty-handed. Everything else the Scripture is saying, hold out a little more like this. Even good things, good things like political convictions and accomplishments, giftedness, financial prosperity, dreams, these are good things. These are important things. But if we hold these most closely, we may not have room in our hands for what the Scripture tells us to hold most closely, faith, hope, and love. In fact, before his, the death of Jesus, Jesus told his disciples these words, John chapter 13, verse 34. He told them, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Again, note, know that you have to be an English major to sort of catch the, the, the big idea of what Jesus is saying there. You want me to read it again? A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you... Love one another. 
Jesus is saying this, remember, to Matthew, who wants to cooperate with the Roman government, to, to Simon, who wants to violently overthrow the Roman government, and to the other disciples who think those two disciples care a little too much about the Roman government. You don't have to give up your convictions. But Jesus is saying, even in the midst of having convictions, deep convictions about what matters, love one another. So in summary, if you had to accuse the sermon last week of having a point, it would be this. The first is to have convictions on things that even things that can be disputed, like political engagement. Have deep convictions. Live out of those convictions, but also allow Jesus to mold those convictions to more honor God. The second thing was, in the midst of having convictions, love those who reach different convictions, different conclusions. And I've emphasized loving other Christians who reach different conclusions so that we can learn to love each other within the family of faith and then turn out to the world around us and love the world around us, even when they reach different conclusions. That doesn't mean we let go of our convictions, but we continue to love one another. In fact, Jesus says that's going to be the mark of his followers. The mark of his followers is not how we vote, not how we view the issues of the day, but that even in our differences, we love one another. But what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. What is love? Just making sure, folks, it's a little chilly in the field today. I'm making sure they were awake. You folks at home, y'all are awake. I know that. What is love? Romans chapter 12, the passage Jack read for us earlier. Thank you, Jack. Read for us earlier gives us a beautiful description of love in action. It gives us a sense of what it means to let Jesus command to love one another, govern all things. So what I want to do today is just a little bit different. I want to do something today what the ancient Christians like Ambrose and Augustine would have called holy reading. Augustine, one of the most influential Christians and thinkers of history, he was an African bishop. Ambrose was actually the pastor through whose church Augustine came to faith during his college years. Ambrose and Augustine would often talk about what they called holy reading. Holy reading is when you would read a passage multiple times and reflect on it. Not because you were going to try to write a sermon, not because you were going to try to write a paper about it. It was more like soaking in the passage, letting God the Holy Spirit take a word or a phrase or a command and have it jump off the page and sink deep into your heart, deep into your soul, that this is exactly what God needed you to hear from that passage. So in a minute... I'm going to ask all of us to do one of two things, to either close our eyes or to focus on the words of that Romans 12 passage by looking at them. On your song sheets in the field, or they'll be about right here uh, if you're online. Either close your eyes if you're more of an auditory learner or, or look at the words if you're more of a visual learner. But I'm going to read the Romans 12 passage twice slowly so that you and I can ask God the Holy Spirit what it means to be loving even in the midst of our political engagement, even in the midst of having and acting out, living out our convictions. What does it look like for us to be loving in a current moment of disruption, of political hostility? The only mail I get right now is attack ads. I'm, I'm dying for a bill. How do we 
be loving in this moment. And after that, I'll give you a few concluding thoughts on the passage. But let's settle into this ancient dis discipline of the early Christians and do some holy reading together. Are you ready? So if you prefer to close your eyes, close your eyes. Don't have to look around, see if everybody else is doing it. Close your eyes. If you'd prefer to read the words, keep your eyes open and focus on the words. Hear these words written by God through a man named Paul for your good. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm going to read it one more time. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay. You can open your eyes. You can... Quit paying, focusing in on the words. The roosters gave us a few amens during the reading. That was always nice. How was that for you? That's, it's almost the perfect passage to do it with, where there's so many things in such a small period of time that God may take one or two of those, a word, a phrase, a command, and make it jump off the page through his Holy Spirit that this is exactly what you needed to hear right now. I have often, I've not always found that to be a rich discipline, but I've often found that to be a rich discipline, a, a kind of a different discipline than prepping for a sermon or prepping for a paper, just listening for what God wanted to emphasize to me. And now as a pastor, I can't help but make a few observations about the passage before we conclude. The passage starts by saying, love must be sincere. In other words, love must be for real. Love is not the same thing as playing nice. It's not the same thing as learning just being nice with folks or learning how to coexist or learning how to get along. Love is something deeper than that. Love is not a surface emotion. Love is a state of being deep down inside of us. At our deepest core, we desire to care for one another. We desire to love others in the same way that God loves us. For love to be sincere, for love to be for real, we need Jesus not just to work on our surface, but at our deepest core, changing our hearts to be more like his. And I find, uh, so that I might have a sincere love. You see, this is different than surface niceness, surface getting alongness, but a sincere love for other people, including those with whom I may disagree on matters of political engagement. Love must be sincere. And then the passage says to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. So love must be sincere, love must be for real, but love is not the same thing as being naive. Love can distinguish between good and evil. Love can distinguish between what honors God and what does not honor God. L love does not have to turn a blind eye to what is wrong or what is evil just in the name of surface niceness because love has to be for real. And so love can distinguish what is good from what is evil, what honors God from what does not honor God. The passage goes on to say, be devoted to one another in love. Devoted emphasizes a long-term commitment. It, it says to honor the people above yourselves, just like Jesus did for each of us. It says to keep your spiritual fervor, to keep serving the Lord. In other words, that a love for God and a love for other people don't have to pull us in different directions. 
In fact, a deep love for God, a deeper faith in God, drawing closer to God, helps us see more clearly his love for us and thus his love for others, which in turn, by God's grace, we pray would increase our desire to love others as God loves them. The passage goes on to say, love is hope, joyful in how it hopes, it is patient in affliction, it is faithful to pray in all situations. It tells us to share with those people, the Lord's people who are in need, because everything came from God in the first place. It says to practice hospitality. In other words, to invite people into your home, but it could also just mean to invite people into your lives. Letting a person feel at rest at home when they are with you. Sharing your life, dirty laundry and all, sharing your life with others. It tells us to bless, not to curse, bless those who persecute us, those who come after you because of your faith. It says to rejoice with those who rejoice, to mourn with those who mourn, that love is willing to adjust to the need of the moment. It says to live in harmony, not to be proud, to be willing to associate with people in a low position. And in fact, that, that phrase, associate with people in a low position, could also be translated, be willing to do menial work. You might wonder how I came up with that insight, how many hours of study I put into knowing that those two phrases could be translated uh, the same way. How did I do it, you ask? I checked the footnote that the editor had put in the Bible. You can do this too. You can study the Bible too. The point being, though, that love is not boastful. Love is not proud. Love is not above the hard work that has to be done in relationships. Love is not afraid to put its arm around someone who is in poverty, someone who is downtrodden. Love is not afraid to get its hands dirty. And then the passage concludes by saying, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And when I hear that, I think, isn't that the love that Jesus Christ has for each of us? It is one thing to be good to the people who are good to you. But what do we do when people turn their back on you? What about the people who leave you behind so that they can live in the way that they think is best to them? What's God supposed to do with those people? By that I mean what's God supposed to do with us? Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still rebelling, Christ died for us. While we were still missing the mark, Christ died for us. When we had nothing to offer, Christ died for us. When we came in empty-handed, nothing to offer, nothing of lasting substance in our lives, Christ died for us. God so desires to live at peace with everyone that he came to earth as Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human, and through his life and his suffering and his death and his, never forget this part, resurrection, he has done 
everything needed to restore you, to restore me to God, to restore you and to restore me into a right relationship with God, to restore you, to restore me to being at peace with God. Imagine that, being at peace with God. As far as it depends on Jesus, he is trying to live at peace with everyone. And you and I can receive the gift that he offers or we can reject it. But when we were empty-handed, Jesus lived and suffered and died and resurrected in order to pave our way back to God, to give us an everlasting peace with God in Jesus' name. And that's how Jesus treated his enemies. That's how Jesus treated us when we were his enemies, rebelling against him, living for ourselves. If that's how Jesus treats his enemies, how will he now treat us as his friends? So I suppose that's my point in all this. If this sermon can be accused of having a point, it might be this. At its worst, political engagement turns people against each other. Political engagement turns us into enemies. But then God's word to us in the scripture, in the Bible, reminds us we're not supposed to treat our enemies in quite the way that we think. Political engagement is important. It's important for a number of reasons. One of the reasons it's important that maybe we don't always see is that political engagement is a vehicle through which God creates in us what lasts forever, love. So much of what we think the importance of political engagement is, is out there. Changing policies, changing laws, changing the way things are done. There's important stuff happening out there. I agree. But also happening in political engagement is important stuff in here. You and I can create what lasts forever. Faith, hope, and in this instance, love. God uses political engagement, God uses political convictions to form in us a deeper love of others, those who are on the other side of the issues, those who are affected by the issues. And I've thought about how it affects me, but I'm realizing because of my faith, I also need to think about how it affects you. And that may cause me to have a deeper love for you. I pray it does. Love, as you'll remember, must be for real. Love must be, even when I disagree with you, even if I think the way the issue is going to cut affects you and me differently, love must be for real. Jesus tells us it's a deep down in your soul sort of love. Just how he looked at Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot and told them that their love for each other would be so countercultural it would tell the whole world that they followed Jesus. Now, believe it or not, this sort of love is not easy, and it's not automatic. We can't conjure it up ourselves. We have to rely on Jesus, drawing closer to Jesus, opening our lives up more to the renewing power of Jesus. And so one of the lasting values of political engagement, and even the disagreements that come from it, is that it pushes us closer to Jesus. 
pushes us closer to our Savior or the one who desires to be our Savior. And when we are closer to Jesus, he makes us grow in our faith and in our hope and in our love, and those things never fade away. Turns out the Roman Empire faded away. They didn't think it would happen. I don't know if Matthew and Simon thought it would happen. It happened. And in the midst of it, they created what never fades away. Faith, hope, and love. So let me ask you this question as I wrap up my little two-part sermon here. Based on Romans chapter 12, how might you engage politically in a more Jesus Christ-centered way? Based on Romans chapter 12, the passage we read today, how might you engage politically in a more Jesus Christ-centered way? How might you engage this season and engage those around you in love? Jesus said, and it's really tough to misunderstand this. It's really tough to, to theologize the meaning of this away. Jesus said, love one another. As I have loved you, so you will love one another. You and I do cross divisions, and whatever divisions we cross are nowhere near as wide as the divisions Jesus crossed. To satisfy God's justice, extend to us God's mercy to give us everlasting peace in a relationship with God, not as an idea, as an invitation to come into the open arms of our Creator and be made new in Jesus' name. So I commend that passage to you and to me that we might reflect on it, do a little bit of holy reading on it, and see how we might engage in a more loving way, even without giving up or suppressing our convictions. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever He's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, you do teach us to pray for those who govern. And so we do take a moment now to pray for our mayors and our school boards, our governor, our president. We're trying to help us navigate a situation where there's not much of a playbook and high stakes on all sides. Lord, we pray you would give them wisdom and humility as they make these decisions. We do pray for their well-being, their health, their renewed health. Even as we continue to pray that you will increase their compassion for those on the margins, those easy to overlook. I pray you'll do the same in my life as well. Lord, you give us the very simple but daunting command, love one another. And I pray that we will not pursue that apart from you, but in a closer walk with you. 
not relying on you less, but relying on you more, to be filled with a love that is beyond this world. Beyond what we can conjure up. So that people might know that love came from above. Lord, some of us today take all this in. We look into the eyes of Jesus. And we cannot help but wonder what sort of love is this? It's a love that is sincere. It's a love that is sacrificial. And it's a love eager to welcome us home to live at peace with God. So Lord, for some of us today, I pray would be the day we quit running from you or keeping you at arm's distance. But that we surrender and come into the waiting arms of Jesus, who as far as it depends on him, desires to live at peace with everyone. We make our prayer in his name. Amen and amen. Well, we would love to pray for everybody. So in the field, you can give us your prayer requests in one of the wicker baskets. You can also put any tither offering there that you're able and willing to give, those wicker baskets online. Davidson Prayer at lakeforest.org. Send an email and we will be sure to pray for you. And financial gifts can go to lakeforest.org slash give. We love you guys. Let's worship together.